Hello and welcome to season two, episode one of Logicast. And happy new year to you if you're listening to this uh, at, in January. I think after January, it's not really appropriate to say happy new year anymore. But we are recording on the 9th of January and it's our first podcast of 2023. So happy new year uh, to any of our listeners. Um, so uh, did you have a good festive break, John? No. <laughs> I spent half of it in bed with some sort of mystery bug taking antibiotics. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, anyway, I forgot to introduce myself. My name is Carl Robinson. I'm uh, director and co-founder of Logicata, uh, and I'm joined today by my colleague John Goodall, um, who has uh, just told you he didn't enjoy his Christmas period. So, uh, but it's only uh, about 358 days until next uh, Christmas. It's less than that, in fact. No, it's uh, yeah. My mental arithmetic is not great, but it's, uh, you know, it's not long until you get to have another attempt at enjoying the <laughs> Christmas holiday period. Uh, so uh, welcome to Logicast, uh, the AWS News podcast. If you haven't listened to the podcast before, every week I share a personally curated list of AWS News by way of our AWS News Roundup newsletter. Uh, which goes out once a week on a Friday. And then John and I uh, pick uh, a subset of those articles that we'd like to talk about in a little bit more detail. So we've got another few news articles to talk to you about this week. Um, uh, despite the fact that it has been Christmas of the year, there's still been plenty of announcements coming out of uh, the AWS media machine. Um, and the first one uh, that we're going to talk about, uh, I've seen loads about this, uh, seems to uh, have got lots of people fairly excited. Uh, but uh, the article is entitled Amazon S3 encrypts new objects by default. And this is an article on the AWS News blog uh, by Sebastian Stormack, who's a regular blog poster on the AWS News blog. Uh, but it's basically saying that uh, S3 now um, will encrypt all new objects uh, that are uploaded into it by default, whereas in the past, I think you needed to set encryption on buckets. Um, so uh, why is it exciting, John? Why is this getting so much coverage? Um, because, as you say, it was previously opt-in, and now it's just on by default, which is great. Um, S3 has made a couple of changes in this regard recently. A couple of episodes ago, we covered... Um, it wasn't encryption, it was the other thing that S3 does, um, that it just sort of started turning things on by default for you, um, which is great. We like this. We like not having to worry about, is it encrypted, is it secured, is it MFA protected, and so on and so on and so on. We like not having to worry about it. To that was an the extent, public buckets thing, wasn't it? That, that was, was the public the, buckets uh, thing, the, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We like not having to worry about these things because it's really easy to just forget. So if it's on by default, brilliant, happy days. To an extent, this does again feel like security theatre to me because it still is, at the default level, checkbox encryption. Push button, it's encrypted now. How do you, how do you validate it? All by going through our endpoint. What? You, you, uh, okay, it's transparent encryption to the consumer, so it may as well not be encrypted unless you're in AWS's data centre. And that's kind of what it's protecting you against. It's good, though, because it means that by default, you're going to start checking that box on the CIS benchmarks that we see with our customers not doing quite a lot. Um, so great, lovely. We like to see that. You can still do the, um, what are the options? SSE S3, which is the default, SSSC and SSE KMS. So you can still do the customer-provided key or via KMS if you don't want to use the default encryptions, which, honestly, if you actually care that it's encrypted and it's not just a checkbox exercise, recommend you do that. Um, but again, this this is great because it means you don't have to remember to do it and it's just on. But 
it's it's just kind of I don't know. I don't think it's worthy of all the noise it's had because it still feels a bit theatery to me. So, are there instances where you might want to store your data unencrypted? And if no. so, can you? Um, no, and yes, I think because you can just tell it to not encrypt. But when it's transparent encryption, there's no reason to not do it. There's no performance overhead. There's no cost overhead. Just turn it on. Like I say, you can't actually prove that it's encrypted because you never get access to their disks. But it's just kind of covering the eventuality where if if you believe that they're encrypting it, and you have no reason to doubt that they're encrypting it, but if you believe that they're encrypting it, just turn it on, leave it on, it's on by default, and it means that as and when they rotate disks out of S3 pools, you don't have to care about it. So you don't need to worry about their secure de disk destruction policy and that kind of thing? Have you ever destroyed a disk? It's good fun. Not uh, deliberately, no. Only by accident. <laughs> I've, because um, I'm a little bit paranoid, I've never put them through shredders, which are really cool if you look, watch the videos, but I have drilled like 19 millimeter holes through them. Good luck recovering that. <laughs> yeah, the shredders, uh, the, you can get some pretty big shredders, actually. Big shredders are cool. I saw a uh, Facebook reel recently of somebody shredding a scooter. Like a, a Vespa scooter, it's just mm. it just came out in pieces at the it's bottom. Great. And, uh, yeah, I'd uh, it beats my five page at a time paper shredder that I have under my desk. Um, I, need, I need to find room in my garage for a large shredder and find some big things to shred. Um, but um, yeah, so it has been it has been quite a noisy one. This, um, but uh, I, I guess uh, it's AWS's retaliation towards all the negative press that S3 has been getting over the years about uh, you know, being the being the source of uh, many high-profile mm. data breaches, particularly the the other thing that you mentioned around the uh, the, the public bucket policy. Now it's much more difficult. Um, you know, there's several actions that you need to go through to make a bucket public, um, which yeah. you still might need to do. Um, you know, if you're hosting a website on there, but they've made that a lot harder. Um, and now this announcement, um, you know, you can't upload data to, to S3 without it being encrypted. So uh, it's all good. And, uh, you know, hopefully we're going to see a lot less of those uh, those data breach announcements going forwards. Uh, or if we do, um, perhaps not pointing the finger at S3 um, and, uh, the, 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 you know, the way that Amazon are managing it. Yeah, I think you're right. For a long time, I have been a little bit defensive of AWS around this. They got a lot of flack for leaky buckets that weren't their fault. And I think the result of that is it's just made them very shouty about things that make them less leaky. Yeah, indeed. Okay, well, let's move off the leaky buckets um, and on to um, the next article, um, which is about a uh, CICD uh, tools, um, unlocking the power of EC2 Graviton, uh, which, of course, is AWS's own um, silicon. Um, so the article is entitled Unlock the Power of EC2 Graviton with GitLab CICD and EKS Runners. Um, so I have to confess, John, this one was a little bit beyond my pay grade. Um, so I'm going to be relying on you <laughs> to explain what's going on here. Um, I did read it and, uh, you know, I started to get a little bit lost about halfway through. Um, but you seemed quite excited about it. So, hmm. uh, yeah, let's uh, let's hear what you've got to say. Is it beyond your pay grade or below your pay grade? I'm not maybe, sure. Maybe it's beneath my pay grade. I don't know. <laughs> beyond my uh, sphere of knowledge, let's say. There we go. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> so let's do a few definitions because, again, this is another, um, not a new service, but a, a new blog saying how you can do something. So let's do a few definitions and then we'll go from there. 
EC2 Graviton, as you've said, is AWS's um, own ARM-based silicon, which is great. GitLab CICD, GitLab is a, a Git offering that has pipelines, so you can do CICD. And EKS Runners, uh, EKS being AWS's managed Kubernetes, and Runners being a term that is come from the GitLab sphere for uh, agents that do things in your pipelines. Cool. That's That's the definitions. If you look at the diagram on this one, which is pretty cool, what they're showing is that you've got uh, runners and then executors in two different architectures, in um, x86 and in ARM64, which in turn, mm, excuse me, which in turn are then spinning up executors in the various architectures. The example that they're using is they're saying your GitLab is hosted somewhere, and then you're using an EKS cluster to run your runners and your executors, which then do things. Why would you want them in two different architectures? Well, because you could be building a Java app in two different architectures, for instance. You could just be building anything that needs to run on two different architectures. And that's kind of the example that they've that they've put together here. Um, I wouldn't really recommend looking through their deploying our solution unless you kind of like Node.js CDK, which I don't, but there we are. It does show you how they're deploying it. Um, but then you scroll down a bit to the building a multi-architecture container image, which is what I'm going on about, which is the cool stuff. You can have the same build doing the same things, running twice and testing twice and all the rest of it on two different architectures, and everything spins up automatically, does all of the work, spins itself down automatically, publishes the multi-architecture manifest and the images, done. That's really cool. That is, that's really cool if you have a particular need for it. Why might you need that? Why might you need to run on multiple architectures, the same app? Um, SaaS vendors, usually. So um, one of our partners, Datadog, for instance, they have agents that run Linux, Windows, ARM, x86, you know, the whole kit and caboodle. Um, so that's kind of why you'd need that, right? Because you've got their agent is doing the same thing all it's doing, it's collecting metrics, it's collecting logs, it's collecting kind of whatever you tell it to, and shipping it off to their system. And you need to be able to do that where your customers are. You need to live where your customers are, and your customers might be running an ARM workload, they might be running x86 workloads, they might be running Linux or Windows or whatever. So you need to be able to kind of cater to that. Got it. Uh, but yeah, this is cool. Um, I wouldn't particularly say it's, quote, unlocking the power of EC2 Graviton, if you like. It's just using Graviton to do that. It's just saying, here's another thing you can do with it. Um, the thing that I find really cool about this, it's something I've played around with in the past a little bit, um, again, running pipelines, is having this auto-scaling GitLab runner executor setup. You have little teeny tiny 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 little runner sitting in there that doesn't really cost you anything because it's sitting on a micro or whatever. It costs you pence a day. And then when you actually need it, boom, spin up some ex executors and they go off and do the work and then they spin themselves down again. And it's kind of the cheapest way of having this auto-scaling fleet of runners to do pipeline work for you if you don't want to use GitLab's SaaS offering. And I'm pretty sure you could do this with GitHub's um, Actions platform as well because, again, supports bring your own runners but um, GitLab and AWS seem to have this particularly close relationship where you find GitLab uh, used as an example in lots of their blogs, probably because they're not owned by Microsoft. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, which is the one that's owned by Microsoft. GitHub. Um, GitHub, of course, yeah. So, um, yeah, the only thing I know about GitLab is uh, I have a pair of GitLab socks that I once picked up at a conference, but uh, yeah. <laughs> have to admit uh the, these uh technologies are a little bit out of my uh, my wheelhouse that's the term i should have used not my yeah, pay grade my wheelhouse uh our american colleague likes to use that term um so uh, yeah it's outside of my wheelhouse um so let's move on to the next article uh, which is about integrating amazon cloudwatch alarms with amazon cloudwatch metrics insights um, so, of course, monitoring uh, a huge part of what we do here at Logicata. Um, so uh, what uh, what can you tell us about this one, John? I'm just picking titles based on if I think they're going to trip you up. <laughs> <laughs> Did this one not? No, you seem to cope. Um, okay, so... What, just, what... In terms of read, just in terms yeah. of reading it or in terms yeah. of actually being able to talk about it? <laughs> no, reading it. It's, oh, it's no, this no, or is it going to test your pop filter? No, there's nothing to test my pop filter and integrate Amazon CloudWatch alarms with Amazon CloudWatch metrics insights. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> okay, let's do some definitions again, because again, this isn't hugely new. Um, so let's do some definitions again. Are you popular? Something's ringing. <laughs> let's do some definitions and then we'll move on. Uh, okay, so CloudWatch. CloudWatch is AWS's um, monitoring service if you like it does uh metrics and logs and there's kind of some bit more detailed bits and pieces in there but things will log to cloudwatch logs by default and lots of metrics push to cloudwatch metrics by default and that's fine and we can kind of live with that metrics insights is a way of having a little bit more granularity into your metrics you can graph multiple metrics with each other um, on the same graph which is something that you do struggle with with other platforms datadog for instance struggles with that kind of thing you know i want to look at uh disk and memory allocation over time from the same host that kind of thing so insights lets you do that using sql which is cool which we like uh cloudwatch alarms send you notifications to email text pager duty whatever um based on a metric hitting or not hitting a threshold, which is cool. Um, and then, yeah, the common use case is metrics insight queries letting you look at multiple things at once. This particular example is giving you quite a common one, to be fair, where you've got an auto-scaling group or a couple of auto-scaling groups and you want to monitor some metrics from every host in there, but the hosts are transient. That's quite hard to do in a world where you have to put agents on boxes and all this kind of thing because the boxes aren't there for very long. With things like EKS or ECS or whatever, you install it as a as a task, as a as a job, as a whatever they call them, uh, in the clusters. But obviously with a standard auto-scaling group, you can't do that because it's just, here's a bunch of servers. So what this is doing is it's showing you how to do a metrics insight graphed metric for, I think it's a CPU, of every host across that auto-scaling group over time. And then it breaks them down and then gives you a, you know, send an alarm if it's more than 70%. Um, and then there's a little bit of a, a foible in that your alarm has to be based on one metric. It can't be based on this sort of combined metric. So they kind of work you around that. And then you get these nice sort of metric conditions and alarms. And from there, you can use the alarm to do stuff. You know, you can, the alarm could send you an alert. The alarm could trigger a scaling action. Uh, it could spin up some queues so you can start dumping messages off. It could spin up, and you know, it can kind of do almost anything you like in response to alarms, which is quite cool. 
Um, but that's kind of not what they're driving at here. What they're driving at here is, as I say, the fact that you can have one alarm for every instance in a scaling group. And as new instances are brought on and old instances drop off, you don't really have to manage it because it's based at the scaling group level, not at the instance level, which is really cool. Of course, that means you can't have um, custom metrics because custom metrics, even in CloudWatch Lad, do require you to install an agent. Uh, but there's nothing saying that you couldn't have the agent built into your launch template, bringing it up and sending them out and doing it from there. Because um, things like you know memory and stuff are based on the OS rather than at a higher level, but you could still do it. But yeah, they use CPU in this one because it's kind of a standard metric and it's easy for blogging purposes. But yeah, this is cool. I like this. This is cool because uh, it's one of the things that I have struggled with with our tool set from time to time cool so you think you might use it uh yeah i, I think i will probably end up using it in in places um again case in point maybe not with auto scaling groups but case in point being uh serverless monitoring no one outside of aws really does serverless monitoring very well or very cheaply so i have a feeling that i'll end up doing something like this for monitoring some of the serverless work that we've got going I think the term you're looking there, looking for there was cost-effective rather than... <laughs> That's the word. Yes. We like to do things cost-effectively rather than on the cheap. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of I these... I suppose cheap has a connotation tools, of bad, doesn't it? But Absolutely. Yeah, whereas cost-effective is good business practice. Um, but, uh, yeah, a lot of these tools, um, it's, a, it's a new area. So uh, I guess there's a lot of development had to go into it, and therefore they're trying to recoup their costs but uh you know it um as you pointed out before you know using third-party tools to manage things like monitor things like lambda um the cost can rack up very very quickly um so uh, it's nice to have some more cost-effective ways to do that and i apologize for the background noise i'd forgotten about the uh the spacebar mute keyboard shortcuts and i was fumbling around looking for the uh, the mouse to click the mute button because of course the uh, do not disturb on apple mac silence all notifications does not silence all notifications silences most of them but not all of them um and uh, that particular one decided to come out of my uh, desktop speakers rather than through my headphones so uh, yeah very totally very unprofessional of me but um we shall have to find a workaround for that for future episodes. So anyway, uh, moving swiftly on, but sticking with the theme of uh, observability, um, we've got an article by Alan Helton, who's one of the AWS heroes. Um, and this one uh, published on Dev.2, um, which is uh, entitled Serverless in 2023, a shift in focus. And what he's talking about here is shifting the focus to observability, uh, because all too often when developing applications, um, developers kind of forget that they need to be managed <laughs> and monitored once they've been deployed. Um, so talk us through this one, John, because I know serverless uh, is a big uh, area of, uh, of, of focus for you, uh, but obviously also uh, observability because uh, that's what that's what we do as a business. Um, yeah, it's an interesting little um, coalescence of, of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't hyper-focus or fixate on them, but it's an interesting air coalescence of interests for me absolutely interested yeah. a lot in that sentence <laughs> um so observability isn't something that's unique to serverless not by any measure um and bad observability is certainly not unique to uh, serverless bad observability has been around since year dot i mean like the first job i ever had was uh yeah we had to get that done really quickly and we didn't really bother about making it testable or developable or, or running anything other than production because regulator fines 
okay, cool. So now we're stuck five years later with this heaping pile of steaming expletives that no one wants to touch anymore. Great, and I've got now. I've now got to sort that out. Thanks very much, guys. Cool. That being said. I'm very guilty of building serverless apps and not thinking about observability and then having to go back through 150 lambdas and start instrumenting them for observability. So, easy done. Um, as the article says, many of us get sucked into the draw of building things quickly without worrying about that kind of thing. You know, Lots of reference architectures don't have it built in and there's a number of different ways to skin this particular cat. Not that I'm advocating for skinning cats um, to make sure that you can you know, observe and monitor your applications, particularly serverless. In the old world, in non-serverless world, you had kind of markers that you could get away with using that told you if your app was kind of doing okay or not. Things like uh, RAM utilization and CPU utilization and execution time and disk space and just server metrics. You could kind of use them as a proxy. In serverless land, you can't. Not really. You can with... Um, memory to an extent but not particularly effectively because none of those metrics are exposed to you beyond percentage utilization of what you've allocated and that's not always particularly useful because it's oh you've allocated a gig of memory and you've used 100 meg you're probably over provisioned yeah but it's a single dial for both memory and cpu and this is a cpu bound app so uh, really no we can't you know it's not always useful um building observability in at the moment, looks a lot like just making sure that you're instrumenting your code with certain tools, be that AWS X-Ray or Datadog Tracing or I think Lumigo and Dashbird and thousands of them exist at the minute, and New Relic and so on and so on. Other tools are available. I know I've quoted about four there, but lots of tools out there. Pays your money, makes your choice. Right? Um, and it's just a case of making sure that from day one, when you're building it, you're building in that observability, you're sending traces to the services that you're using so that you can get the logs out without having to suck through CloudWatch logs and you're getting the traces and you're looking at where your bottlenecks are and, and that kind of thing. That's kind of what it looks like at the moment. And again, as the article says, the right alarms to build into the application, the right metrics to trace and so on are ones that directly correlate to your SLAs, your SLIs, your SLOs, your KPIs, all of those TLAs that you like so much. I love a TLA. <laughs> I was impressed the other day. You even knew a non-AWS TLA. That was great. I know lots of TLAs which are uh, not AWS. Um, yes, most of my career was spent learning non-AWS TLAs. It's only recently that we've moved into AWS TLAs. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So as the article says, like I've just said as well, it'd be very easy to jump in and just start putting APM tracing and stuff in there. And that is part of it. But understanding the system that either exists or that you are building is also very important, right? Everything starts with analysis. You must know what metrics you care about, where things are going, why they're going there and all that kind of thing. Um, applications yeah, exactly. are... It's not just about dumping metrics and dumping logs. You need to know what good looks like. Uh, yeah. And and therefore, what bad looks like. So, you know, what am I looking for in all of this information? Because, uh, you know, if you just dump all of that information out, give it to the ops team, um, they don't know what to do with it. So exactly. you know, that's not necessarily job done. I think there needs to be uh, some more guidance given that. Yeah, the problem, of course, as again, the article says, is that workloads vary massively from one application to the next. So we can't, they can't be particularly prescriptive about what you should be monitoring. 
can't do it because your application versus my application could be doing completely different things and therefore what we look at what you look at are going to be different i think it's probably worth setting a couple of standard basics but again it's it's kind of the the proxy metrics if you like it's are you getting 500 response codes are you using up all your memory those kinds of things and they're not always useful so yeah but yes a shift in a, a shift in focus is not so much a shift in focus as bringing this thing that we're all guilty of being bad at back into focus i think absolutely so um a nice segue then into our next article uh, where we're going to talk about yet another industry uh, TLA. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, once we've got all of that observability data, who's responsible for uh, making sure that the SLOs, SLIs, uh, et cetera, are met? That is, of course, the SRE. Uh, so no, we've got this article on. <laughs> ultimately i suppose you're right yeah uh but uh you know perhaps the cr the, the sr I'm, I'm getting my, <laughs> i get a little bit tongue-tied now you've succeeded john in, uh, in <laughs> tongue-tied uh with a with an article title uh but uh yeah the sre reporting to the cio or the ceo or the c-e-i-e-i-e-i-o uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> old mcdonald on his farm yeah <laughs> We've not, we never had a musical interlude yet on the, on Logicast, have we? And I'm not sure that we should, quite no. frankly. Uh, anyway, so this uh, this next and final article, you'll be pleased to hear, uh, of this episode um, is on DevOps.com, and it's entitled Why SREs Are Critical to DevOps. But it, it, it does link very neatly uh, into what we were just talking about with regards to observability, et cetera. But uh, I think you've got some differences of opinion to the author mm. uh, on, on this particular article, John. But maybe let's talk a little bit about let's explain some of the, the TLAs that we've gone through. Um, I could do some of them because I know TLAs. So uh, SRE is a site reliability engineer. Yeah, but what do they and, do? Well, they focus on uh, SLOs and SLIs, which are service <laughs> level objectives and service level indicators. Um, so there you go. That's exhausted my TLA knowledge for this article. Now, now you can tell us what they actually do, John. So SRE is a funny old thing. It's being particularly prescriptive about it, SRE is a job that was sort of born out of Google. Google created it as a particular way of implementing a DevOps methodology. DevOps isn't a job. People say they're DevOps engineers, this, that, the other. This argument has been going on for a decade. It's My argument is even having been a DevOps engineer, and I sell myself as a DevOps engineer in some cases, that's not a job. It doesn't exist. It's a way of working rather than a thing to do. But when you try and tell that to a recruiter, you know, the market has decided that DevOps engineer is a job. Okay. SRE is a way of implementing DevOps. DevOps cares about, you know, mean time to recoveries and uh, more more observability and uh, greater hand holding and, and more developer ownership and all that kind of thing. SRE is a specific implementation of that that starts looking at service level indicators, feeding into service level objectives, talking about error budgets, that kind of thing, and then SLOs feeding up to your overall customer SLAs and then MSAs and so on. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is, I think because it's so odd and so kind of awkward to pin down what it actually means in the market, the market has kind of decided what it means even though techies largely disagree with it um leads to the rise of these sorts of articles we're saying sre versus devops that's not really a thing sre is a form of devops right it 
And then you sort of go through this article saying, you know, the role of SRE is considered obscure. No, it's not obscure. It's just a little bit ambiguous because we haven't defined it well. You know, you can define a project manager. You can't really define an SRE outside of a particular company because it means something different because it's not been around long enough to have a proper market definition. That's kind of the problem. And that's the problem I take with this article is they, they're guilty of, of feeding that rhetoric quite a bit. And they'll do SRE versus DevOps. Sorry, that's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. The real question is, what is our SRE learning from DevOps as a methodology? And then in that particular section, they talk about SRE and DevOps in each bit. And then they kind of don't in a couple of them. They just sort of talk about SREs for a bit and DevOps for a bit and why they're critical to DevOps and so on and so on. They're not necessarily critical to DevOps. It's critical to an SRE implementation of DevOps. DevOps is a way of doing things, not a thing to do. Rant over. <laughs> so, uh, as you say, these, some of these things have been defined by the market. So I guess the golden question is who gets paid more, an SRE or a DevOps engineer? <laughs> Whoever's got the better negotiation strategy. Yeah. What I've, what I've found, to be fair, the market having defined these, is SRE tends to be more focused on production systems and engineering things whereas devops kind of has become a proxy for platform engineering which is kind of what we do for our customers to a great extent outside of the ops space it's kind of the area that i tend to sit in it's building architectures for other people to build on devops has kind of become a proxy for platform engineering and if they'd said um, SRE versus platform engineering and written that exact article, copy-pasting DevOps for platform engineering, I'd have had no issues with it whatsoever. So I think they've just kind of tacked onto the market version of DevOps being platform engineering, if you like. Well, I think that's a brilliant idea for your next blog uh, post, <laughs> John. <laughs> Once I finish the other one that I'm not doing. Yeah, yeah. Rewrite the article the way that you would like to see the article written. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I think that brings us nicely to the end of our time for Season 2, Episode 1 of Logicast. So thanks for your time, John, um, and thanks to everyone for listening. We'll be back again next week with another episode of Logicast. So until then, uh, farewell. <laughs>